ho, 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 pow, or something. Good morning, Pinkie Podsters. Well, it is for me as I'm recording this, trying to do it when there aren't a bunch of sounds around me, mostly that stupid HVAC thing, which happens in the winter particularly with the heater going and this and that and the other. If you've been with me all year on this podcast, you know that of which I speak. Yeah, okay, but this is Christmas. Almost Christmas. It's Christmas Eve. And so I am going to do for you, really, I'm just going to read some things that I found for this special bonus episode. Because, you know, I've been on a break for a little bit. I'm doing okay. Are you doing okay? Are you having happy holidays? By the time you hear this, it may be well after. I don't know. So Merry Christmas, Happy Kwanzaa, Hanukkah, Happy New Year, everything. I know I'm missing several things. Yule is my personal favorite or Jule. I don't know. But we're going to cover some of that today, okay? Okay. Shall we just snap right to it? Snap, snap. I am going to start with This Day in History from History.com. So a lot of people celebrate December 25th as the birthday of Jesus, but very few in the first two Christian centuries actually claimed any knowledge of the exact day he was born. So the oldest existing record, according to History.com, of a Christmas celebration is found in a Roman almanac that tells of a Christ's nativity festival led by the Church of Rome in 336 AD. Now, the reason why Christmas came to be celebrated on December 25th remains a bit obscure, but many researchers believe that Christmas originated as a Christian substitute for the pagan celebrations of the winter solstice. To early Christians, and many today, the most important holiday on the Christian calendar was Easter, which commemorates the death and resurrection of Jesus. However, when Christianity began to take hold in the Roman world in the early 4th century, church leaders had to contend with a popular Roman pagan holiday commemorating the, quote, birthday of the unconquered son, Natalis Solus Invicti. This was the Roman name for the winter solstice. Every winter, Romans honored the god Saturn, the god of agriculture, with Saturnalia, which is a festival that began on December 17th and usually ended on or around December 25th with a winter solstice celebration in honor of the beginning of the new solar cycle. Sounds a lot like some current pagan traditions now, doesn't it? Very nice traditions. It's, it's the coming, the return of the light people. Now, this festival was a time of merrymaking. Families and friends exchanged gifts. And at the same time, Mithraism, worship of the ancient Persian god of light, was popular in the Roman army. And the cult held some of its most important rituals on the winter solstice. But then along comes Roman Emperor Constantine I, who converted to Christianity in 312, and he sanctioned Christianity, Christianity, already with the flubs, here we go. So church leaders made efforts to appropriate winter solstice holidays and thereby achieve a seamless, or at least more seamless, conversion to Christianity for his subjects. 
In rationalizing the celebration of Jesus' birthday in late December, church leaders may have argued, may have, they really don't know for sure, that since the world was allegedly created on the spring equinox, which would be late March, so too would Jesus have been conceived by God on that date. The Virgin Mary, pregnant with the Son of God, would hence have given birth to Jesus nine months later on the winter solstice. Now, as you can plainly hear, this is all conjecture with no evidence. And before I continue, I'm not trying to disparage your beliefs, but I do like the history of all of our beliefs and why we do what we do. So please don't take offense. I'm just telling you as it is. So from Rome, the Christ's nativity celebration spread to other Christian churches in the West and East, and soon most Christians were probably celebrating Christ's birth on December 25th. To the Roman celebration was later added other winter solstice rituals, which, which were observed by various other pagan groups, such as the lighting of the Yule log, decorations with evergreens by Germanic tribes. Those both come from Germanic tribes. I think I read that weird kind of strangely. The word Christmas entered the English language originally as Christmas. I'm probably saying that wrong. Uh which basically means Christ's Mass, or Festival of Christ, in Old English. A popular medieval feast was that of St. Nicholas of Myra, a saint who is said to visit children with gifts and admonitions just before Christmas. This story evolved into the modern practice of leaving gifts for children said to be brought by Santa Claus, a derivative of the Dutch name for St. Nicholas, which is Sinterklaas. And that is what History.com wanted to tell us about this. Again, I want to tell you I'm not disparaging anyone. And I would also like to point out to my fellow non-Christians that it's not polite and I don't think it's fair these days to say to Christians that they stole our holidays. And the word itself does reflect their belief, Christ's Mass. Was it overlaid over other celebrations that came before? Yes like a lot of things, and we can all peacefully celebrate our ways, okay? There's no war on anything, by the way. Yeah, had to say it. Now, now that I gave you just a little bit of what some say is the background for all of this, I am going to take you to a much cooler website, sorryhistory.com, no offense, denofgeek.com, because I want to tell you about some different legends, and this one is Krampus, who is getting more and more popular, I must say, which possibly is not surprising if you look at the state of things in the world. There's probably some psychological and socio, whatever word I'm looking for, surrounding that. There usually is, but let's not even try, because I didn't look any of that up. All right, denofgeek.com has this to say. Holy shit! No, really, they said that. You better not pout. Allow us to give you a quick education on Krampus, the anti-Klaus of Northern Europe. Remember the heat miser from the 70s Rankin-Bass Christmas specials? Krampus is worse. This guy makes the Grinch look charitable. Krampus is like a bad Santa Claus, only hungrier. He is the coal in the stocking of little Bavarian kids who were naughty during the year. Burgermeister Meisterburger must have had a Krampus ornament on his tree. 
Krampus is a Christmas character, like Kris Kringle, but instead of feeding his diabetes with nibbles of butter cookies and milk, Krampus eats the heads of children as a yuletide snack. Mm-mm-mm. Throw in a little hoo hash and we've got ourselves a new course after the antipasto. In recent years, it has looked like Krampus is the new holiday standard. So let's look at the origins. Jolly St. Nick scrunched his paunch down the chimney to empty bags of toys. Krampus would show up empty on Christmas Eve and leave with his bag filled with bad kids, the pouters. Krampus comes from Germanic folklore. He looks like a demon and sticks bad kids in a bag. When the bag is full, he brings the kids, not to Never Neverland or the Netherlands, but to the Netherworlds. <laughs> According to artistic representations, Krampus is hairy with cloven hooves, horns, and a long pointed tongue. He carries around bells, chains, and a very phallic birch branch. At some point in the 20th century, he apparently found the S&M shops in Hamburg and traded the birch branch for a whip. Krampus comes from the German word Krampen, which means claw. And I wonder if that's where Sandy Claus comes from in the nightmare before Christmas. Krampus is just a demon who went into his father's business. His father was hell, one L, in Norse mythology. Krampus is called Klabaf in Austria, but also goes by the aliases Bartel, Bartel, Niklobartel, Wulbartel, Pezelbach, Peznickel, Gumpfinkel. <laughs> My tongue is getting twisted. I need another cup of coffee. And Krampus. Putz? I don't know. Actually, Krampus predates Santa. So I think it would be fair to say that it's not really a Christmas thing. It has become one. It's around the same time. But <laughs> to go on with the uh, article here, he predates Santa, which would make him just a touch older than Mick Jagger, who's a week younger than Dirt. Whoever wrote this, I love you. In 1975, anthropologist John J. Honigmann wrote that Nicholas himself became popular in Germany around the 11th century. Masked devils acting boisterously and making nuisances of themselves are known in Germany since at least the 16th century, while animal masked devils combining dreadful comic antics appeared in medieval church plays. Austrians believe Krampus derives from a pagan supernatural who was assimilated to the Christian devil. And you look at him and he does look like the, by the way, very made up versions of the Christian devil who was not originally a Christian. Oh, I'm not getting into it. We're talking about Christmas and Christmas time things. So in a 1958 article about Krampus, Maurice Bruce wrote, there seems to be little doubt as to his true identity for, in no other form, is the full regalia of the horned god of the witches. Oh, he went into it for me. So well preserved. The birch, apart from its phallic significance, may have a connection with the initiation rites of certain witch covens, rites which entailed binding and scourging as a form of mock death. The change chains could have been introduced in a Christian attempt to bind the devil, but again, they could be a remnant of pagan initiation rites. Whips and chains instead of tinsel and trains. Nutcrackers not included. That would be such a great place to end it right there, but no, let's keep going. The Krampuslauf 
is a run where local men traditionally try to get Krampus to drink some schnapps. <laughs> Don't do it. Don't do it. The worst hangover I ever had in my life was on spearmint schnapps. I mean, you're drinking syrup, people. Sorry. Not sorry. On December 5th, which is also called Krampusnacht, and there's been some horror films now surrounding that, but better known as the Eve of St. Nicholas Day, while Nicky's asleep, drunken old men in Austria, Romania, Bavaria, South Tyrol, Northern Fuli, Czech Republic, Slovakia, Hungary, Slovenia, and Croatia dress up like Krampus and chase neighborhood kids off their lawns with rusty chains. So a lot of people are into this. On the morning of Nikolaustag, December 6th, German kids check to see if the shoes they left on the stoop have any presents in them. So kind of like stockings, eh? If their shoes are empty, the kids have to boil and eat the tongue of the shoe, not each other's, while their parents point and laugh. <laughs> I'm just picturing it, people. For years, the, I mean, what? Hey, parents, rude. Okay, I'm being polite. For years, the Catholic Church tried to keep a lid on Krampus. Well, you know you can't keep the devil in, right? <laughs> Whatever. It was lascivious and kind of seedy. Fascists weren't too thrilled with it either, apparently. During World War II, the nasties and the brown shirts thought it had something to do with social democrats. Mm-hmm. Austria tried to make money off Krampus by selling chocolate-covered Krampuses, would, would they be called Krampi, uh, ornaments and toys. In the early 20th century, Krampus Christmas cards, there's some alliteration, Krampus Christmas cards were a big seller from the Norseland to Romania and Bavaria. Maybe not so much with the Hallmark crowd, Hallmark crowd, but in Germany, where they had Sink the Bismarck cards, the mailman delivered rhymed cheer, okay, punctuation sir the mailman delivered rhymed cheer sneered by this hungry monster what that didn't even make sense what are you trying to say mister okay i guess the mailman uh th these cards and and things were sneered at by krampus okay whatever if you look at the cards krampus seems to also have a thing for t dude really top heavy women well, yes, if you look at the artwork, I suppose the artwork, I suppose that's true. Krampus is having a bit of a renaissance. American Dad ran an episode called Minstrel Krampus. Trick or Treat director Michael Doherty brought us a major feature film called, appropriately enough, Krampus, which he co-wrote with Todd Casey. You can read the review if you follow the link here. Not going to do it. William Shatner recently indulged in the unholy holiday spirits in the Krampus Holiday Anthology, A Christmas Horror Story, from directors Stephen Hoban, Grant Harvey, and Brett Sullivan. This article is written in 2019, FYI. Shatner played Dangerous Dan, a DJ pulling in some holiday overtime while Santa's elves became zombie Krampuses. Ooh, cool. How have I not seen this? George Buzza plays Santa Claus at ground zero of a new epidemic. Kevin Smith had also been developing a feel-good holiday photo play starring the curmudgeonly but cuddly Christmas character for a few years known as Anticlaus. But apparently this fell by the wayside. Don't tease us like this! Jim Henson Productions and Walden Media will be giving the monster a family-friendly spin in Happy Krampus. Did this happen? Does anyone know? I didn't know we were getting into movie recommendations in this article. The dark Christmas hero gets the pink slip from Santa, moves to New York, and reinvents himself. He launches a PR attack trying to replace Christmas with Krampus Day. So, 
That's apparently what that movie is about. So anyway, set a place for Krampus this Christmas. But hide the kids and the silverware because he's got a bag. All right. Shall we keep going? I'm, I'm, there's another Den of Geek thing I want to read you, but I'm going to keep going here with something, uh, back to a little history, okay? And now we're at bbc.com with the article called When Christmas Carols Were Banned. Did you know that? So during the Puritans' rule of England, celebrating on 25th December was forbidden. Singing Yuletide songs then was a political act, and this is according to Clemency Burton Hill. When it comes to revolutionary protest songs, what springs to mind? Maybe Billie Holiday's Strange Fruit? Bob Dylan's Blowing in the Wind? Sam Cooke's A Change is Gonna Come? I'm guessing the humble Christmas carol is probably low on your list of contenders, but in the mid-17th century England, during the English Civil War, the singing of such things as the holly and the ivy would have landed you in trouble. Oliver Cromwell, the statesman responsible for leading the parliamentary army, and later Lord Protector of England, Scotland, and Ireland, <coughs> that was a spit, was on a mission to cleanse the nation of its most decadent excesses. Yeah, that wasn't all. On the top of the list was Christmas and all of its festive trappings. So if you're looking for an actual war on Christmas, here it is. Since the Middle Ages, Christmas had been celebrated in much the same way as today. 25 December was a high holy day on which the birth of Christ was commemorated, and it kicked off an extended period of merriment, lasting until Twelfth Night, which is January 5th. Churches held special services. Businesses kept shorter hours. People decorated their homes with holly, ivy, and mistletoe. And acting troops put on comedic stage plays, which is a precursor to modern pantomimes. Taverns and tap houses were brimming with merrymakers. I'm sure they were getting all tanked up, drunk, you know, having a good time, much like now. And families and friends came together to gorge themselves on special food and drink, including turkey, mince pies, plum porridge, and specially brewed Christmas ales. I told you, drinking and eating. Communal sing uh, singing about the season was all the rage. Caroling, caroling. Now, the first carols had been heard in Europe thousands of years before, by the way. The word possibly deriving from the French carol, a dance accompanied by singing. These tended to be pagan songs for events such as the winter solstice until the early Christians appropriated them. A Roman bishop in 129 AD, for example, decreed that a carol called Angel's Hymn be sung at Christmas service in Rome. By the Middle Ages, groups of wassailers who went from house to house singing during the 12 days of Christmas had at their disposal many hundreds of English carols featuring, featuring nativity themes and festive tropes such as holly and ivy. Even King Henry VIII, who, you know, 1491 to 1547, had a bunch of wives, wrote a carol called Green Groweth the Holly, whose beautiful manuscript can be seen in the British Library. The phrase Christmas carol, two L's, is mentioned in an early Latin English dictionary, and one of the great lyric 17th century poets, Robert Herrick, wrote a carol text beginning, What sweeter music can we bring? The original music by Henry Laws is sadly lost, but a contemporary setting of the poem by John Rutter is a modern seasonal favorite, proving just how evergreen the tradition of carol writing is. To Cromwell, though, and his fellow Puritans, Singing and related Christmas festivities were not only abhorrent, but sinful. 
According to historical sources, they viewed the celebration of Christ's birth on 25 December as popish and wasteful tradition that derived with no biblical justification from the uh, Roman Catholic Church, thus threatening their core Christian beliefs. Nowhere, they argued, had God called upon mankind to celebrate Christ's nativity in such a fashion. You shall be solemn on this day that they don't even think is the day. Now, in 1644, an act of parliament banned the festival. And in June 1647, the Long Parliament passed an ordinance confirming the abolition of the Feast of Christmas. So, dear Christians, in 1647, the holiday was officially banned. Bah humbug. But the voices and festive spirits of the English men, women, and children were not so easily silenced. For nearly two decades that the ban on Christmas was in place, 20 years it was forbidden. Burger, meister, meister, burger. Semi-clandestine religious services marking Christ's nativity continued to be held on December 25th. Really, it's Santa Claus is coming to town, isn't it? And people continued to sing in secret. Christmas carols essentially went underground, although some of those rebellious types determined to keep carols alive did so more loudly than others. On December 25th in 1656, a member of parliament in the House of Commons made clear his anger at getting little sleep the previous night because of the noise of their neighbors' preparations for this foolish day. Now, come the time of the restoration of the English monarchy in 1660, when legislation between 1642 and 1660 was declared null and void, both the religious and secular elements of the 12 days of Christmas were allowed once again, to be celebrated freely. And not only had the popular Christmas carols of previous times survived, but interest in them was renewed with passion and exuberance. Both the 18th century and Victorian periods were golden eras in carol writing, producing many of the treasures that we know and love today, including O Come All Ye Faithful and God Rest Ye Merry Gentlemen. So why did people continue to sing against the odds and with such high stakes? After all, many purists in the classical world might argue that they are a low art form. Musical kitsch, certainly not real music. That's me spitting again because I cannot stand gatekeepers. But as you can see, they've existed for a long time. But this is mere cultural snobbery. Yes, exactly, BBC. Some of the greatest composers in the canon, including Felix Mendelssohn, and Gustav Holst have turned their hand to writing Christmas carols, like Hark the Herald Angels Sing and In the Bleak Midwinter. Carols can be deeply touching, affecting, contain plenty of complex musical ideas, even if they lack the scale of an orchestral symphony. And some of them have been done by symphonies since. Trans-Siberian Orchestra does probably one of my favorite Carol of the Bells as a non-traditional. Listen to it if you haven't. Look it up. And I'm going to stop there because I think that a lot of us know the power of music. Yes, you do, don't you? Because it's not just Christmas carols. And there was singing before Christmas, since Christmas, at many events. And our music is, is uplifting, touching. It can make you cry. It can make you smile. It can make you dance. It can make you delirious. It does all kinds of wonderful things. We don't need to try to figure out why they are powerful, and especially when something is forbidden, something that means a lot to you. Well, you're not going to give it up that 
easily. Now we shall go back. No, 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 wait. I'm going to save it for last. Now we shall go to smithsonianmag.com. And this is a plea to resurrect the Christmas tradition of telling ghost stories. Did you know that was a tradition? And it's not just Scrooge. All right. And hang on. My webpage had a pop-up, which annoys me. So for the last hundred years, Americans have kept ghosts in their place, letting them out only in October. This is written in 2017. In the run-up to our only real haunted holiday, Halloween. But it wasn't always this way. And it's no coincidence that the most famous ghost story is a Christmas story. Or put another way, that the most famous Christmas story is a ghost story. Charles Dickens, A Christmas Carol, of course, was first published in 1843. And it's a story about a man tormented by a series of ghosts the night before Christmas. And it belongs to a once rich, now mostly forgotten tradition of telling ghost stories on Christmas Eve. Dickens' supernatural yuletide terror was no outlier, since for much of the 19th century, the holiday was indisputably associated with ghosts and specters. Quote, whenever five or six English-speaking people meet round a fire on Christmas Eve, they start telling each other ghost stories. Humorist Jerome Kay, that's his quote, wrote in his 1891 collection, Told After Supper. Nothing satisfies us on Christmas Eve but to hear each other tell authentic anecdotes about specters. It is a genial, festive season, and we love to muse upon graves and dead bodies and murders and blood. Yo, true crime fans, unite! This is a Christmas Eve tradition. Get your stories on. Telling ghost stories during winter is a hallowed tradition, a folk custom that stretches back centuries when families would while away the winter nights with tales of spooks and monsters. A sad tale's best for winter, Mamalus proclaims in Shakespeare's The Winter's Tale. I have one, of sprites and goblins. In the titular Jew of Malta in Christopher Marlowe's play, at one point muses, Now I remember those old women's words, who in my wealth would tell me winter's tales and speak of spirits and ghosts by night. Based in folklore and the supernatural, it was a tradition of the, Purit the Puritans frowned upon, of course, because they didn't like anything. So it never gained much traction in America. Damn it. Washington Irving helped resurrect a number of forgotten Christmas traditions in the early 19th century, but it really was Dickens who popularized the notion of telling ghost stories on Christmas Eve. The Christmas issues of the magazines he edited, which were Household Words and, after 1859, All the Year Round, regularly included ghost stories, and not just A Christmas Carol, but also works like The Chimes and The Haunted Man, both of which also feature an unhappy man who changes his ways after visitation by a ghost. Dickens' publications, which were not just winter-themed but explicitly linked to Christmas, helped forge a bond between the holiday and ghost stories. Christmas Eve, he would claim, in The Seven Poor Travelers, which is from 1854, is the witching time for storytelling. Now, Dickens discontinued the Christmas publications in 1868, complaining to his friend Charles Fetcher that he felt, quote, as if I had murdered a Christmas number, pardon, as if I had murdered Christmas, this is a, is this how he actually said it? <laughs> As if I had murdered a Christmas number years ago. Perhaps I did, and its ghost perpetually haunted me. I think it's supposed to be as if I had murdered a Christmas a number of years ago, and perhaps I did, and its ghost perpetually haunted me. So Christmas is haunting him? 
But by then, the Ghost of Christmas ghost stories had taken on an afterlife of its own, and other writers rushed to fill the void that Dickens had left. By the time of Jerome's 1891, Told After Supper, that's the title, he could casually joke about a tradition long ensconced in Victorian culture. I'll link this um, website maybe if you want to remember these titles and look them up. Now, if some of these later ghost stories haven't entered the Christmas canon as Dickens' work did, perhaps there's a reason. As William Dean Howells would lament in a Harper's editorial in 1886, the Christmas ghost tradition suffered from the gradual loss of Dickens' sentimental morality. The ethical intention which gave dignity to Dickens' Christmas stories of still earlier date has almost wholly disappeared. Now, while readers could suspend their disbelief for the supernatural, believing that such terrors could turn a man like Scrooge good was apparently a harder sell, and especially to only happen overnight. People always knew that character is not changed by a dream in a series of tableaux, that a ghost cannot do much towards reforming an inordinately selfish person, that a life cannot be turned white like a head of hair in a single night, but the most allegorical apparition, and gradually they ceased to make believe that there was virtue in these devices and appliances. So basically they didn't think that, they, they didn't think that anybody could be changed overnight, which they have a point. Dickens' genius was to wed the gothic with the sentimental, using stories of ghosts and goblins to reaffirm basic bourgeois values. As the tradition evolved, however, other writers were less wedded to this social vision, preferring to simply be scary. In Harry James' famous gothic novella, The Turn of the Screw, perhaps you've heard of it because I have. I think I read it once, but I don't remember it now. The frame story involves a group of men sitting around the fire telling ghost stories on Christmas Eve. This should be a new tradition. Let's all, let's all decide that maybe we're going to read The Turn of the Screw every year, okay? I don't know. We'll see. Let me know next year. Now, this sets off a story of pure terror without any pretension to charity or sentimentality. So if you just want the bejesus scared out of you, turn of the screw. At the same time, the tradition of Christmas ghosts had begun to ossify, losing the initial spiritual charge that drove its popularity. A new tradition was being imported from across the Atlantic, carried by the huge wave of Scottish and Irish immigrants coming to America. And that was Halloween. The holiday as we now know it is an odd hybrid of Celtic and Catholic traditions. It borrows heavily from the ancient pagan holiday Samhain, which celebrates the end of the harvest season and the onset of winter. As with numerous other pagan holidays, Samhain was in time merged with the Catholic festival of All Souls Day, which could also be tinged towards obsessions with the dead. And it's merged into Halloween, a time when the dead were revered. The boundaries between this life and the afterlife were the thinnest, and when ghosts and goblins ruled the night. Now, Halloween did not immediately displace Christmas as the preeminent holiday for ghosts, partly because for several decades it was a holiday for Scots. Scottish immigrants, and to a lesser extent Irish immigrants, tried to disassociate Halloween from its ghostly implications, trying unsuccessfully to make it about Scottish heritage, as Nicholas Rogers notes in this Halloween from Pagan Ritual to Party Night. There were efforts, in fact, to recast Halloween as a day of decorous eth ethnic celebration. Organizations such as the Caledonian Society, that's a Scottish thing, in Canada observed Halloween with Scottish dances and music and the poetry of Robbie Burns. While in New York, the Gaelic Society commemorated Halloween with a Senach, an evening of Irish poetry and music. Anyway, Americans' hunger for ghosts and nightmares, however, outweighed their hunger for Irish and Scottish culture. And Americans seized on Halloween's supernatural rather than cultural aspects. And we know how that turned out. 
yeah, candy and whatnot. But some of us, since they segued into Halloween, still remember the origins. And that's all I'm going to say about that. Because now, dun dun brrr, drum roll, drum roll, drum roll. Back to Den of Geek. Scary Christmas Stories, A History of the Holidays Ghostly Tradition. It always is Christmas Eve in a ghost story, Jerome K. Jerome, 1891. Same guy mentioned in the other article. In the English countryside, dinner had ended, and the company retired to the drawing room. They gathered around the fire as the parson, who sat in a high-backed oak chair, proceeded to tell goblins and ghosts. The squire, not a superstitious man himself, listened intently as the parson spoke about the crusader who rose from his tomb for a nighttime ride. The old porter's wife added to the tale with her own of the crusader's march on Midsummer Eve, when fairies became visible. Such was Christmas night at Bracebridge Hall, England, in 1820. The story set in the fictional manner was written by American author Washington Irving and published in 1820 in the fifth installment of The Sketchbook of Geoffrey Crayon Gent. This was less than three months before the world was introduced to the Headless Horseman in the legend of Sleepy Hollow, prior to the start of Victorian era, and when Charles Dickens was only seven years old. Twenty-three years before Ebenezer Scrooge changed his ways on the holiday in 1843, and 143 years before Andy Williams first sang about the most wonderful time of the year in 1963, Christmas had already been established as the season for telling scary ghost stories. Irving's English Countryside story reminded readers of the idea of the paranormal and Christmas connection, but he didn't invent it, not by a long shot. Before it was Christmas, it was midwinter, solstice, Saturnalia, Sol Invictus, and Yule. It was the longest night of the year in the Northern Hemisphere. It represented death and rebirth, and was a time when the veil between worlds was thin, and it took place around December 21st. Prior to the emergence of what we know as the seasonal mascot, Santa Claus, there was Sinterklaas and St. Nicholas before him. There was the long-bearded Odin, who would lead a band of hunters or fairies or armies of the dead across the sky during Yuletide on the wild hunt of the Old Norse and Germanic pagan beliefs. And much like Odin and Solstice, they were appropriated or enveloped into Christmas, as were seasonal pagan songs turned into carols. I'll link this page too because they give links to the songs. But I am so glad they mentioned Odin and the Wild Hunt because Odin is clearly Santa Claus. Or you can also go with the ever popular Sun King and Winter King. But that is uh, a metaphor for the light and the dark. As Christianity spread, folklore incorporated the supernatural with a religious holiday. The Anticlaus Krampus is possibly from a pre-Christian era, but the beast of Germanic and Eastern European origins became a counterpart to Saint Nick and appeared as a hairy goat-like demon with horns and cloven hooves. Written in the 9th to 11th century, the Sagas of the Icelanders, which I have around here somewhere, has some pretty heavy-duty spectral action during the season, including revenants. And the underworld race of goblins known as, oh gosh, Kalekantzoroi, 
emerged in southeastern Europe in approximately late 14th century with a mission to wreak havoc during the 12 days of Christmas. The idea of paranormal stories told during the winter has already been documented in fiction by 1589 when Christopher Marlowe wrote of the season's tales of spirits and ghosts in The Jew of Malta. Shakespeare shortly thereafter wrote of a sad story, best for winter, of sprites and goblins in 1623's The Winter's Tale. Nearly two decades ahead of Oliver Cromwell banning or trying to Christmas celebrations during the English Civil War. We already covered that. Meanwhile, in the colonies, the Puritans rejected the pagan trappings and revelries of Christmas. Christmas was a very stoic, serious affair for the Puritans, I'm sure. So just remember, when you celebrate all these wonderful gift-giving and lights and eating and drinking, and so, that Christians didn't always see it that way. Now, Stephen Nissenbaum, author of The Battle for Christmas, writes that from 1659 to 1681, Massachusetts made public celebrations of the holiday a criminal offense, carrying a fine. Notably, Captain John Smith of Jamestown celebrated the holiday in 1607, but festi festivities in America were not widespread. Christmas, take note, was not even a national holiday until 1870. 1870. By the time Irving came to write of English Christmas traditions, which also involved mumming and hanging mistletoe, that's the actors going around in the, in the masks and stuff, it was a romanticized notion and not likely being observed with much fanfare outside the countryside. People in cities and towns, little towns, were not doing it. In the industrial areas, December 25th was just another day to work. They didn't even take the day off, you guys, okay? But Irving's story nonetheless connected with Charles Dickens. In his book, Dickens, Peter Aykroyd writes that the author had lived an idyllic life in the country until that happy existence abruptly ended and his father was sent to a debtor's prison when young Charles was only 12. Sir Irving's Bracebridge which is a setting that would have been familiar to Dickens, and based on real-life Watt family at Astor Hall, must have stirred up nostalgia for his childhood lost. In time, Dickens and Irving became friends, and the former credited the American author with influencing his own Christmas writings. A Christmas Carol in Prose, being a ghost story of Christmas, was published December 19, 1843, which that's the full name of it, but Dickens' previous work, The Pickwick Papers, had already included a story about a Christmas Eve with ghost stories reminiscent of Irving's Old Christmas. He likewise introduced a proto-Scrooge in the story of the goblins who stole the sexton. That is a, a navigational guide, uh, particularly on ships. In 1836, as a chapter of Pickwick. Interestingly, from a paranormal perspective, Dickens' ghosts in Carol are more actually inhuman entities than traditional spirits of those who have passed. Christmas past is described as an it with a bright flame atop its head. Hello, light! Present is described as quite large with a wreath of holly and icicles. Hello, dark! And Christmas yet to come is the grim reaper-esque figure in a black shroud with a discernible face and body. Hello, Veil between the worlds is gone. 
The ghost of Marley is not, I'm adding those anecdotes on my own. It's not in this article. I don't, I just want to point that out. I'm making associations as I go. Now the ghost of Marley is a familiar sort of ghost, though trapped in chains, returning when the veil is thin, much like the old pagan tale suggested. If Irving's successful sketchbook reminded English readers of the ghost story tradition, it was Dickens' blockbuster hit that made it mainstream. Like any good creator, he gave the audience more and wrote sequels for additional Christmas, Christmas books. I don't know if they were sequels. And several essays on the topic, many of which involved supernatural elements and promoted Dickens' carol philosophy and themes of generosity. After Jesus and Santa, Dickens gets a lot of well-deserved credit for how we celebrate Christmas. He helped remind the urban English population of the good old days of Christmases of yore and popularized the holiday as a secular charitable observance. And he also coined the phrase, are you ready? Are you ready? Merry Christmas. So instead of getting pennies in the wad about whether or not people say Merry Christmas or Happy Holidays or whatever, just know that Charles Dickens is the one who started saying Merry Christmas. Okay? And I really like that. It's about being merry. Though Dickens didn't create the idea of Christmas ghost story, he helped make it quintessentially British. Victorian magazines and newspapers took to publishing these theme stories for holiday fireside reading, and the readers ate it up. Not surprisingly, other authors wanted to get in on the trend, even if they didn't echo this carol philosophy of, you know, generosity and, and good cheer. Elizabeth Gaskell contributed the ghost yarn, The Old Nurse's Story, to Dickens' 1852 collection, A Round of Stories by the Christmas Fire. The list goes on. John Burroughs' Hardwood's Horror, A True Tale, 1861. Ada Busson, The Ghost Summons, 1868. Robert Louis Stevenson's Markheim, 1885. And even Edgar Allan Poe, from America, set his 1845 poem, The Raven, in bleak December. Did you remember that? Well, now you know. An American expat Henry James, The Turn of the Screw, begins on Christmas Eve. Now, by 1891, English humorist Jerome K. Jerome commented on this popular tradition. It always is Christmas Eve in a ghost story. Christmas Eve is the ghost's great gala night. On Christmas Eve, they hold their annual fete. On Christmas Eve, everybody in Ghostland who is anybody comes out to show himself or herself, to see and be seen, to promenade about and display their winding sheets and grave clothes to each other. Whenever five or six English-speaking people meet round a fire on Christmas Eve, they start telling each other ghost stories. Nothing satisfies us on Christmas Eve but to hear each other tell authentic anecdotes about specters. It is a genial, festive season, and we love to muse upon graves and dead bodies and murders and blood. And there you go. So this popularity of ghost stories in Christmas was aided by a fascination with the paranormal and the rise of spiritualism, which I have done podcast episodes on in the Victorian and Edwardian eras. They were so into trying to speak with the dead in particular. Seances and the use of spirit boards and the, you know, and then they invented the Ouija board, etc. Tarot cards, mediums became very vogue 
and so did the holiday trend. When the relig religious movement faded from the spotlight in the 20s, 1920s, the ghost story tradition actually stuck around, even if the English slightly cooled on it during the early to mid-war torn 20th century. Now, M.R. James, who is a medieval scholar and one of the best ghost story writers ever, took to telling fireside tales of the supernatural while he served as provost at Eton College from 1918 to 1936. In North America, Canadian novelist Robertson Davies would also do the same at Massey College, according to bibliographers Carl Spadoni and Judith Skeleton Grant. Meanwhile, American horror author, and we must say racist, H.P. Lovecraft set his 1925 Necronomicon story the festival during Christmas time. Anecdotally, it seems Halloween now dominates when it comes to the season of the ghost, even in the UK. But the Christmas tradition has not entirely faded. In the 70s, a BB special, A Ghost Story for Christmas, has returned in recent years. I guess it was uh, I guess it was a 70s special and now it's returned. My British, my British friends, tell me if it still survives. And The Guardian published five stories over the course of many days, over five days in 2013. Now, contrary to Scary Ghost Stories' lyric of classic American Christmas Carol, The Most Wonderful Time of Year, the U.S. didn't take to the Christmas ghost story in the same way the British cousins did in the late 19th century, which makes it especially peculiar that the song was written by two New York City kids, Edward Pola and George Weil, and sung by Iowa's own Andy Williams. Rather, Christmas in America became especially defined by the jolly, but also supernatural if you think about it, Santa Claus character presented in the 1931 Coca-Cola ad painted by Haddon Sunblom and inspired by Clement Clark Moore's A Visit from St. Nicholas, a.k.a. Twas the Night Before Christmas. The folklore of Christmas in America in the early 20th century was candy cane sweets. It was lacking the ominous spookiness that reminds us to seek the light because that's what this is all about. Now, the indigenous peoples of North America also celebrated solstice, such as with the Iroquois uh, Haudenosaunee, the Passamaquoddy tribes believed that frost giants returned north during this time. Frost giants also remind me of Nor uh, Nordic areas. The general idea across different native nations that this time is a celebration of light returning to Turtle Island, Earth. These traditions were never incorporated into American culture and were instead purged by colonization. Although, yo, hey, some of us heathens out here remember. But America has gradually been making up for its absence of Christmas ghosts and goblins. The angelic 1946 film, It's a Wonderful Life, directed by Frank Capra and starring Jim, Jimmy Stewart, espouses enough of the Carol philosophy of goodwill to make Dickens proud. In Dr. Seuss's 1957 book and 1966 animated special, How the Grinch Stole Christmas, oh, I love that one, Boris Karloff, the creature on Mount Crumpet is a modern-day Krampus. Rod Serling toyed, somewhat literally in one case, with the notion of magic and ghosts in his 1960-62 Christmas episodes of The Twilight Zone, Night of the Meek, Five Characters in Search of an Exit, and Changing of the Guard. Now these days, the holiday horror subgenre of the film has channeled the scary nature of Victorian tales. Santa as slasher is a well-tread territory, thanks in large part to 1974's Black Christmas, directed by Bob Clark. 
who actually also co-wrote and directed A Christmas Story, funnily enough, so opposite. And more than Ghosts, The Monsters of Christmas in American Cinema has included Gremlins, but I didn't really find them scary. I thought they were cute. Krampus, Jack Frost. There is There are Happy Jack Frost, and there's a scary one. I haven't watched it yet this year. Ginger Dead Man, and the zombies of Anna and the Apocalypse. And the real Santa and his creepy elves. Oh, oh, oh! They're giving a shout out to one of my favorite films. I was going to tell you about it at the end here. Um, if you have not seen Rare Exports, A Christmas Tale, oh, please look it up. Do yourself a favor. It's Finnish, Finland, and it is one of the coolest movies I've personally ever seen. Your, your mileage may vary, but it does, uh, when they say real Santa, it's an older tradition let's just say and I don't want to spoil anything but watch all the way through the credits okay because you know how sometimes the ending of a film kind of blows what came it can make it or break it right sometimes and for me when they get to the end of this film it just tied everything up so perfectly that I was just applauding at the tv I'm like oh my god it's the best ending ever because it just suited it perfectly rare exports a Christmas story. And do watch it with the subtitles, please, because how often do you hear Finnish spoken? Okay, not enough. Back to the article. But perhaps with the exception of A Nightmare Before Christmas, another favorite, and some of the more effective adaptations of a Christmas Carol, such as Scrooge, which is funny, the sentimentality of, sentimentality of Irving and Dickens is kind of absent from modern hol holiday tales of the supernatural but they do bring us right back to the monsters and undead of pagan tales. Perhaps once more in the near future, with all of our nonstop demand for content across streaming platforms and the seasonal English tradition of gaining fresh attention on media outlets, maybe we're at a threshold of a new age of December set stories populated with spirits and goblins. Maybe every Christmas Eve in the future will be a great gala night for the ghosts. What do you think? I flubbed up all over the place, but hey, I almost actually thought of doing this live, but I didn't know if it would save it so I could publish it for the people who would not know I was going live and would not be there. <laughs> now, before I completely wrap up, I want you to know that you can find The Turn of the Screw online for free at the Gutenberg.org project. It's, it's the Gutenberg project. It's for use of anyone, anywhere, at no cost, and with almost no restrictions whatsoever. You may copy it, give it away, or reuse it under the terms of the Project Gutenberg license included with this ebook online at www.gutenberg.org. The Turn of the Screw. Henry James. Release date July 12, 2008, in ebook. This was last updated on this website, October 23, 2018. As far as I know, this is all copyright free because it's clear back from the 1800s. There are movies and such, so you would have to be careful about sharing those. But this, this you can read for free. And I'm going to give you just a little taste of it. The story had held us round the fire, sufficiently breathless, but except the obvious remark that it was gruesome as, on Christmas Eve, in an old house, a strange tale should essentially be, I remember no comment uttered till somebody happened to say that it was the only case he had met in which such a visitation had fallen on a child. Pretty good opening, huh? The case, I may mention, was that of an apparition in just such an old house, as had gathered us for the occasion. An appearance of a dreadful kind to a little boy sleeping in the room with his mother and waking her up in the terror of it. Waking her not to dissipate his dread and soothe 
him to sleep again, but to encounter also herself before she had succeeded in doing so, the same sight that had shaken him. It was this observation that drew from Douglas, not immediately but later in the evening, a reply that had the interesting consequence to which I call attention. Someone else told a story not particularly effective, which I saw he was not following. This I took for a sign that he had himself something to produce, and that we should only have to wait. We waited, in fact, till two nights later, but that same evening, before we scattered, he brought out what was in his mind. I quite agree, in regard to Griffin's ghost, or whatever it was, that its appearing first to the little boy at so tender an age adds a particular touch, but it's not the first occurrence of its charming kind that I know to have involved a child. If the child gives the effect another turn of the screw, what do you say to two children? We say, of course, somebody exclaimed, that they give two turns. Also, that we want to hear about them. I can see Douglas there before the fire to which he had got up to present his back, looking down at his interlocutor with his... Sorry, I was doing so well. Interlocutor with his hands in his pockets. Nobody but me till now has ever heard. It's quite too horrible. This naturally was declared by several voices to give the thing the utmost price, and our friend, with quiet art, prepared his triumph by turning his eyes over the rest of us and going on. It's beyond everything. Nothing at all that I know touches it. For sheer terror? For sheer terror? I remember asking. He seemed to say it was not so simple as that, to be really at a loss how to qualify it. He passed his hand over his eyes, made a little wincing grimace. For dreadful! Dreadfulness! Oh, how delicious, cried one of the women. He took no notice of her. He looked at me, but as if instead of me, he saw what he spoke of. For general uncanny ugliness and horror and pain. Well then, I said, just sit right down and begin. And I'm going to stop there, and I suggest that you look up the turn of the screw and find Gutenberg.org, and you can read it for free. Also, I will make you an offer right here and now. I might be persuaded to read the whole thing. I don't know how long it is. On, on an episode, if you like, I'll read it myself ahead to get a little more familiar so I don't complete, completely muck it up with my alien tongue. Or if it's very long, maybe in a short little series. But let me know if you want to hear more of it or just look it up yourself. Like I said, you can read it for free. I'm already wondering what the dreadful story is. I haven't seen the movie, I don't think, or movies, plural. Anyway, that is my little Christmas bonus episode. Perhaps some of you will listen to it tonight for Christmas Eve for fun and bring back a little of the traditions after you hear what they are. Perhaps some of you will watch Screws, eat, drink, and be merry. I know a lot of people start celebrating tonight. I will probably be spending a quiet time, so if you want to say hi to me on the social medias, at podpinky, Instagram pinky underscore podcast. I'm on Facebook. I have a page there. I have my own website, pinkyswearpress.com. I will probably be spending this time writing and working on something new called Dark Wings. Um, well, I'm not going to tell you the classification of it yet. There's a bit of vampire, there's a bit of supernatural, and a bit of romance. And... I am working on the omnibus, and if you know, you know. If you don't, come to my website, pinkyswearpress.com. I am putting together my series into one giant volume and hand-typing the entire thing. If you could uh, 
come join up or just say hi, buymeacoffee.com, PinkiePod. All of these links I usually have in my show notes or on my social media. Thank you for listening. It's been a wonderful almost year of podcasting. My anniversary is actually in February. Yes, I'm still on break, but I will come back. I'm just needing a little breather and trying to decide what will be an awesome opener because I think I'll just call the next season three. I ended up with 20 episodes, 20 episodes, season one and two. Season one felt much longer because I had a lot of bonuses, a lot of little mini episodes. We'll see if I bring that back. I haven't decided. In the meantime, hug your loved ones, tell them you love them, and I hope that you have the most happiest time of the year. And tell a couple of ghost stories and don't forget to uh, have a little party for them even if it's a quiet one. A little ghost gala. Yeah, yeah. And Happy New Year. It's the most wonderful time of the year. I can sing better than that, really.